My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Dominic Longo. Dominic is the founder of Flourish and Gaze, a um, coaching and consulting firm that works especially with gay, bi, queer, and trans men to support their leadership, their personal development, their growth, and their flourishing. Um, he is a remarkable scholar, teacher, coach, thinker, theologian, bringing together a number of different streams of understanding about how we humans are made and our potential, who we can become if we give ourselves the gift of a life of transformation and growth, which um, is not the gift that really many of us are given and certainly not uh, a number of different identities in our dominant culture, including queer identities. So our conversation today explores human development and growth and flourishing through that particular lens, through what it is to be a queer human being, in particular a queer man, and the challenges and the threats and the protections that we need to defend against those threats to survive in our culture. And the really beautiful possibility that we land on in the last 10 or 15 minutes is the recognition that if we can create cultures, kind of culture with a capital C, the sort of, you know, um, American culture, if that such a thing exists, but also cultures, plural, uh, cultures of identity, of history, of lineage, of ethnicity, of, of origin. If we can create a world where cultures can flourish, and where human beings of those cultures can flourish, that benefits us all. That the world becomes a more vibrant, technicolor expanse for us to play in and create in. And we don't talk much, uh, I name it in the conversation, and I, I want to name it here, we don't talk much in this conversation about some of the, what we might call more extreme oppositions to that flourishing, to that diversity, to that technicolor reality. Um, so I want to just honor that and name that, that there are, there are some deeply rooted ideas about what it is to be human that are, are, are deeply against what Dominic stands for. And to a certain extent, we play with that, although not in its most extreme and violent form. And I want to honor that. And, and Dominic, in the way he shows up, really honors that, the reverence for the protections we need to, to take on to survive in this world of ours that we've built. 
but we absolutely do speak to not only to um, queer identifying humans, but also maybe queer with a capital Q, but also sort of the, the queerness that's present in all of us, not just, not just as it relates to sexual orientation, for instance, but to this, the weirdness and strangeness that is possible if we are willing to set down our protections and our defenses. So this is an absolutely gorgeous conversation along those themes, and I think we should get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Dominic has for us. Hi, Dominic. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks, Andy. Glad to be here. Me too. Um, I'm in touch. I got myself in touch with a number of lovely conversations we've had uh, over the phone, uh, sometimes walking together, sometimes in, in different places. But um, as I get in touch with those conversations, it really underlines for me why I'm so excited to have you here today, because I experience you as someone who is really devoted to weaving together an understanding of, of how people work and how the universe works, and in particular, what it is to be a gay man or a queer man or a bi man in, our, in this world of ours that we have created for ourselves, and, and, how, and how to help people flourish in that context. So you just have this, this lovely kind of synthesis of these different streams, and um, I'm really excited to explore those with you today. Thank you. Hmm. Hmm. I had a chance to come to a workshop you hosted a couple months ago that was called Queer Flourishing for All. And uh, I know that you're working on a book right now. And I don't, uh, I, as someone who's, who's written stuff, I know that that, like, I don't know where you are in that process. And I don't sort of, uh, if there's a superstitious part of you, the superstitious part of me doesn't want to, uh, you know, inquire too deeply into that, but I'll just name that I know you're working on it. And it sounds like at the heart of that effort is an attempt to speak to what's so important for queer men, starting with queer men, but really for all of us, for this idea of queer flourishing, for queer flourishing for all, that there's something our world needs right now in that flourishing. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to explore that with you today. How does that yeah. sound? Yeah, that's great. And I am not at all superstitious. So, uh, <laughs> no, no, no problem. Uh, there's nothing going to be jinxed uh, <laughs> about it or whatever. And okay. I, I've been working on the book for a few years. Um, yeah. Maybe 80% done, you know, mm. sort of somewhere in that mm -hmm. zone. Mm. Mm. it's uh it's not a, likely a closer to the end than to the beginning at this point oh god i hope so <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's awesome i really can't wait without rushing it i hope that when it's ready it's ready i can't wait to dive deeply into it and and part of the reason i can't wait is is what happened at that workshop that that for me that kind of clicked in a way that i hadn't yet experienced in our one-on-one -on -one conversations which were just a bit more intimate and personal was mm -hmm the um 
I don't know if study is the right word, but the sort of the the studies that you've been doing to pull in a variety of frameworks that the sort of stage development frameworks of folks like um, Bob Keegan, the um, sort of mythic frameworks of, of folks like Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. And, uh, and it just was like to the way that you were synthesizing those with this very, your own understanding of who, who you are as a gay man and also the folks who are in that, Converse, in that workshop that I was in and the way people were really working with these concepts and relating to them, I could just kind of feel light bulbs turning on in me and I sensed that they were turning on in others. And And I wonder, maybe we could start there with this this journey you've been on to, to lay out a framework for development that in particular helps queer men, but also then we can then use that to point towards this bigger philosophy that you're standing for of queer flourishing for all. Yeah. Um, I'm glad it resonated for you. And, um, and I just want to acknowledge that I bring to these topics and to my work, um, well, different versions of myself, uh, you know, including uh, a scholar, you know, uh, uh, I, I sort of, there's a couple, and there's a couple of versions of even the scholarly part of me. One part of him I call Dr. Longo. <laughs> uh, and the other more playful is Dr. D, <laughs> uh, you know, who, who has a little bit more uh, uh, sense of humor about himself and doesn't take himself quite so seriously. Uh, but Dr. Longo takes himself very seriously. And uh, he's the one that got uh, a PhD in, uh, well, Arabic and Islamic studies at Harvard. Uh, and that guy has been studying, as you say, you know, and, and, and studying the work of Bob Keegan, Suzanne Cook-Greuter, um, Jennifer Garvey Berger, you know, these true scholars of human development. And I am not a scholar of human development. I'm not a developmental psychologist. And I have been using all of my intellectual capacities over the last few years uh, to learn what I can as a practitioner hmm. of coaching and leadership development to also, you know, inform myself also about trauma, which I didn't set out to be a topic that I would delve into. I, you know, I really have gained a lot my, myself from psychotherapy and, you know, I, I'm not aspiring to be one myself, hmm. but trauma is such a feature of, of queer lives. Uh, you know, and just statistically LGBTQ people do experience trauma at, at a much higher rate than straight mm. folks. Mm. So I have come to, you know, delve into the theory, delve into the understanding that modern psychology has of trauma and uh, not unrelated shame. Mm. So, you know, these are some of the the topics that Dr. Longo has been studying, um, <laughs> even though he no longer is sort of driving my life, mm. you know, as he did when I was a, a professor of comparative theology, uh, you know, and, and as a graduate student before that, um, the heart part of me, you know, the um, being really present to uh, emotion, to experience, to, the fears and hopes and joys of 
you know, myself and the person in front of me, the group in front of me, uh, the friend in front of me, you know, I think to, well, that, that guy, uh, who, 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 who maybe we can call Dr. D, you know, or Dr. D. It was my, uh, <laughs> my friends in Berlin the summer after I graduated my, from my PhD program who, who embraced my moniker and gave it Dr. D. Which <laughs> my, my mom at the time, this is a little off topic. She, uh, she kind of recognized, and I was very impressed. She's like, that sounds like a porn name. I'm like, yes, mom. Wow, good for you. You know, that you kind of know that, you know, that there's this kind of like wink, kind of an impish, you know, twinkle in the eye, which is certainly also a part of me uh, who, who's, you know, very much enjoys uh, the, the, the sort of danger, the risk, the edginess, and the pleasure of human sexuality as mm. part of, of what connects all of us as we live and, mm. and what makes us live, what brings us into living. Mm. Right. Mm. So that um, twinkle in my eye is, is more there for Dr. D. Uh, <laughs> and even as he too has, you know, his own uh, intellect. So, 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 I, so I bring those parts of myself to all of this. I just, that's what I want to kind of say at the outset. Yeah. yeah I really uh, receive and welcome those parts of you. And I'm enjoying the impishness alongside the, this the deep scholarly distance that you have access to. Yeah. And, uh, and hopefully we can allow both of those aspects to be present in our conversation today because they're mm-hmm. both so central to what you're yeah. aspiring to invite other people into, I sense, which is to my experience of that workshop and of our conversations is the sense that um, you have a clear intellectual knowing and heart intuition that if we weren't so goddamn ashamed of how we're made and we didn't shame each other and harm each other for how we're made, that that a lot of possibility would open up in our societies and our, in our communities. So that, I think that's the, that's what really, that was when I said, what do I want to talk to Dominic about? It's like, I want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And maybe as a, as a, as a way in, and to the extent that either of the doctors want to offer the playfulness or the scholarly angle on this, like, what was the moment when you realized or committed to this, um, that like, Oh, there's a need here. And my particular set of skills and personal experiences, like, I got to listen to that. There was some, some calling you heard or some push that you felt to say, I, someone needs to speak to this and I, and I'm going to do it. What was that? How did you come to that? Given that you were sort of on this theological studies track and, and at least from afar, if I look on a, on a resume, I go, Oh, well, that's an interesting, like, how, tell me. So tell me more about that, that choice that you've made to step so fully into this identity. Well, I'll, I'll give a somewhat leisurely uh, answer rather than the bullet point one, uh, given Great. this conversation that we're in and, and hearken back to another version of myself, let's say the, the 15 or 16-year-old me, who, who I call F. Dominic, quotation mark, Nick Longo, uh, 
because that's what in my high school was like on the, uh, 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 the roster of every class I would come into because my, my actual name, my first name is actually Fred and that I never have gone by that. And I went by Nick growing up. Um, so, but my name is actually Dominic, my middle name. So that guy was involved in retreats, spiritual retreats at, at my Jesuit all boys high school Hmm. in Omaha, Nebraska. And both as a participant on those retreats, which were part of just being in that high school and they weren't all Christian in nature. They were for really everyone of every religious orientation, but also I am Catholic and I am Christian and I became a leader of some of those retreats. Hmm. And, you know, there we were boys, teenage boys with all that that means in our, in our somatic experience, our emotional development, our intellectual kind of awakening as we, you know, learned calculus or AP US history or whatever the things were. Um, there was something about having deep conversation that already that guy, F. Dominic, Nick, loved to do. Hmm. To hmm. the point that my friends would be like, oh my God, it's another Nick Longo question. You know, it would be like <laughs> these deep questions that would get philosophical. And um, so there's a true line. And that guy, by the way, had a mother who was a single mom. And uh, when she, you know, divorced my dad, she had like a high school diploma and two kids and a mortgage. Mm. And mm. she went from there to eventually, you know, straight A's through college, law school, became a partner at the largest law firm in Nebraska and, and like defended like brokerage firms in, in, in New York. Wow. She took part in a lot of women's leadership programs. Mm. And they made sense. I understood like being a woman and she would explain, you know, describe sometimes her experiences of sexism in, in her life, in her, in her professional life and otherwhere. And I really got the need for a program that really gave support and stimulus for her to grow as a professional and as a woman and as a leader with other women. Mm. So both of those from my early life, are actually intimately connected with the version of me a few years ago who like put up his shingle for a leadership development and executive coaching firm and started wondering like, what clients would I serve? Um, because I knew that from my time, uh, yeah, in, in, at McKinsey, you know, this management consulting firm that calls itself a leadership factory that is so keen on, you know, kind of growing leaders among its consultants. And of course, that's what we do with our clients to a large degree. Also, I, I thought, you know, I've been a gay man for a long time, never heard of an opportunity mm. for gay men to be together in a context specific grouping mm. to grow as human beings or as leaders. Mm. Um, so it was that inkling that, that sort of gap in the world that lack um, I had taken part in a lot of wonderful leadership development programs and experiences and even one-on-one coaching. And for all that I gained from all of those, none of them met me both in my gender and in my sexual orientation. Hmm. And so there were, you know, huge, I mean, in fact, they all just kind of presumed like the world does that I was a straight cis man, you know? Hmm. Um, Well, of course I'm not. Um, So, I wasn't met by those. And I remembered my mom doing those, you know, she has, she has, she passed um, some Mm -hmm. years ago, almost nine years ago now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I remembered her journey and how, oh, actually identity exclusive spaces can be really helpful mm. to us as mm. we become ourselves more fully. Mm. Mm. There's for, for folks who haven't thought much about that idea of gathering and learning centered around a particular identity of cent- or set of identities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there, or maybe there are some folks who have thought about it, but even feel threatened by it. Like there's a sort of sense. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I've heard people say versions of well, why can't we all just do it together? You know, like kind of good hearted, at, at least as far as I can tell, good hearted sort of sense of like, why do you need to go over there to do that? Why did your mom need to go over there to do that? Like, can't we, can't we just all do this together? And um, you're saying implicitly, well, even already explicitly, but maybe you could speak a bit more to the, the why, what happened for your mom? What happened? What's happened for you? What's happening for your, the men you work with when you create these spaces that, that didn't happen for you when you were like, I'm not being met. I'm not being seen. What, what, what is it about this? being seen that that deepens or converts or transmutes an otherwise more generalized experience? Well, to a large extent, the work I do in the, the Hero's Journey program, which is my sort of um, you know, six-month-long leadership development program for highly accomplished gay by and queer men, it is a work of taking off armor taking off masks, um, remembering the pieces of ourselves that we, we have covered or hidden or downplayed um, and risking being real in ways that we normally aren't, being vulnerable mm-hmm. in ways that we normally aren't, um, to rediscover what might be possible for us without bearing the burden of those very valuable shields and helmets and I don't know, shin guards and, you know, whatever that armor is. Uh, I recently was at the the Metropolitan Museum of Art looking at the the armory uh, and it was Mm. fascinating to Mm. really imagine wearing all of that stuff and then moving with the weight of it Mm. and and doing battle against dragons or whoever they fought back in medieval times. That's why there's no more dra- no dragons anymore. So. <laughs> Decimated. Decimated. Um, but there's something, there is something akin to that in the, the various defense mechanisms mm. that mm. we construct for ourselves to keep our tender, vulnerable, and, and in a way, young selves safe in mm. a, a threatening world full of dragons and other monsters. Um, or just, you know, that other tribe that often attacks us. And, and so in creating a, a identity-exclusive space, first of all, it's about security and safety and the sense of, okay, you, you know what? It's okay to bury your weapons before you come into here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. To, to disarm and to, 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 if not totally disrobe, at least take off the, the metallic like barriers between mm-hmm. you and the world so that mm-hmm. the the, the sun can hit your face and the air can come mm. in and we can see you for who you are. Mm. And by the way, it's a lot lighter. 
you can be more agile, you can be more nimble, you can be more playful, whimsical. You can dance much more easily without wearing all of that get up. Yeah. That's scary to disarm and take off armor and take off masks by which we are known in the world. Mm. Mm. Um, So that's the Maybe if I could just underline, particularly in contexts where we don't fully know or trust the intentions of of the space that we're in. And and so what I hear you saying is like, if you choose to walk through this space, you're going to walk in a space where you might not still yet know the individuals, but you can lean on a sense of uh, affinity and I, and shared experience that will allow, make it easier to kind of take off the, the gauntlets and the face. That's and, right. Is that right? That's right. And I mean, you know, and, and, and being a little bit more serious, letting Dr. Longo speak for a moment, like there is actual, um, you know, rigorous literature on studying women's leadership programs in particular um, and about how much more effective they are in creating a sense of security, a sense of being understood, not having to explain yourself or what it's like to get pregnant while you have a job, for example, or to be harassed. Um, and so the kind of intimacy that, that women form in women's leadership programs is more, more rapid and more profound and more lasting. Because of that identity exclusive nature. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there, there, as far as I know, there are no other men's like gay, bi and queer men's leadership programs in the world, except for the one that I have just begun to create. Mm-hmm. So there mm-hmm. are no studies about that. And, and there are some for, let's say, the whole, you know, alphabet soup of LGBTQ folks. But you know what? It's really different to be a queer woman in the world or to be a trans person in the world than mm-hmm. it is to be a gay, bi or queer man. And even among you know, men or male identifying, you know, queer folks, there's, there's a diversity that sometimes takes some bridging, but it's, there's enough um, commonality. I find that, that, that work of creating together safety can be, can be done. Um, So it's not just an intuition that it is based on some, uh, you know, again, research uh, about the effectiveness of such programs. And what are some of the particular, maybe moving a bit deeper into the metaphor in a way that's, that someone who isn't a gay man wouldn't like, wait, arm, okay, I kind of get it. Armor, like, what are some of the particular pieces of armor, sort of personas or identities or protective traits that, that your participants are able to set down yeah. in the space that they otherwise might be wearing out in the world. Great. Well, you know, since you've, you, we have, have, have uh, uh, summoned uh, the theologian part of me and the scholar of religion yes. part of me into this conversation. Let's, let's talk about that part. Yeah. So um, whether we're talking about a, a Christian context or a, a Islamic context, um, just to take two of the major world religions, uh, boys who grow up, in Christian or Muslim families, um, receive messages from their their faith community, which includes often and usually their families, the authority figures of their religious communities, their uh, catechism or religious instruction, whatever materials, curricula, 
whatever that is, that, well, we can kind of fill in the different kinds of content here. Um, sex is dangerous. Um, sex between people of the same sex is bad, sinful, depraved, sick, wrong, mm. will get you into hell, um, is worthy of torment, punishment, murder, death. You know, I mean, the, the exact it's contours intense. of that can be, yeah, it's intense. Um, and this kind of exposure comes even before we know anything about ourselves, before mm. we mm. have had our mm. first orgasm, mm. before we know the difference really between boys and girls. We're mm. already exposed to this kind of hell and damnation kind of discourse about what happens if, you know, two boys are fooling around hmm. or two girls. And that gets a much more intense when we are marriageable, nubile, you know, uh, sexually uh, developed uh, uh, adults, young adults, teenagers. The, the, pressure mm. to mm. conform to the, the, the gender binary heteronormative uh, expectations are really intense. Mm. And so to protect ourselves, so as not to be crushed by the weight of that discursive artillery, mm. we create all kinds of protective measures. They can be, uh, this this thing that we talked about uh, uh, in the queer flourishing for all is the best little boy in the world, hmm. you know, syndrome, which is the name of a, a memoir from about 1978 or nine by a gay man here in America. And, you know, he followed all the rules. He got all the A's. He, you know, went to Harvard MBA and he worked at IBM and he, he was the best little boy ever with undoubtedly a clear part in his hair and a carefully trimmed beard. And he smelled nice and he wore the right clothes, probably preppy back in those days of the eight, you know, that's one way to be like abstemious, prissy, even particular in mm. our articulation of our language so that it is perfect and it is right. Mm. And mm. I am, you know, unimpeachable mm. Mm. to make up for the the attacks of being morally depraved mentally deranged worthy of damnation i'm gonna be impeccable well and wonderful society rewards this kind of performance and of course our educational systems our our, our corporations our, even our family expectations all try to get every little kid to kind of, you know, get that A or whatever. I mean, but it's taken in us as a strategy for creating a sense of self-worth and safety for some people. And that's, this is, of course, not limited to, to queer kids, but it has its own flavor for us. Mm. Mm. So that fusion of self with achievement self with impeccability and perfection is one kind of armor, if you will, that, wow, is there a reward waiting on the other side of letting that one off and taking that one down and, and burying the weapons that are in, mm. in part mm. of that 
that strategy. Mm. Wow, the kind of authenticity and possibility of making mistakes and it being okay. Mm. Uh, being impeachable sometimes and that not being a threat to who I am or my, my ultimate worth as a human being. So that's, that's one illustration that has a bit of the moral uh, uh, flavor for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for bringing that. So you're creating something that as far as you know, it doesn't exist in the world, a leadership development program for, for gay, bi and, and queer men. And that means you didn't have that. Is that right? That's right. Let me see if I can get a handle on my question. So in a way, like what you, what you've done is find your own path towards taking off that armor spaces and places where you, that might not have been like the exact purpose or agenda, but you found a way for yourself to do that work. And I, and I wonder in whatever way you're comfortable sharing, if you could kind of point to a story or a moment or a journey of your own where you kind of got in touch with one of these survival strategies and just kind of re- like realized how good it felt to not wear it for a little while. Or like, how did you kind of get it? You, Dominic, how did you experience that? Or yeah. How did you experience that? Well, one thing I want to say is that, of course, taking off the armor and burying the weapons is only one important step in mm. becoming ourselves more fully. Mm. Um, mm. It's crucial and it's hard and it's scary. It might even be the scariest, but that's just the beginning. That's not the end. Mm. Mm. Um, then you can dance and figure out what dance steps you like. And, you know, oh, maybe I have wings and I can even fly and, oh, and be that. whatever kind of fairy or eagle or <laughs> yeah. dragon that you might be. But you won't know until you unburden yourself from these defense mechanisms. Mm. But um, for myself. Um, oh, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of ways we could go with this. I mean, and I guess I'm because, again, we're talking about religion. It seems to be. Um, yeah, let's keep playing with mind. that. But. You know, I think I did my first degree. I mean, my, I, mean I was a, uh, I did a master's degree in theology when I was about uh, 24 to 25 um, at my alma mater at Boston College, where I had done my, my undergrad work in, in French and German language and literature. Um, because I wanted to use my intellect to be born able to kind of evade the attacks uh, mm. that come from the religious discourse mm. and, and particularly my religion's own discourse mm. about uh, sex, about, you know, non-heteronormative uh, sexualities. And, you know, I, I, I found myself to be an intellectual. And so having intellectual, um, capital to use in in taking that 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 sort of hate the sinner or sorry hate the sin love the sinner for example kind of language that the u.s bishops were using back in those days um and mm, let's Mm. you know let's find a way here 
Mm-hmm. Not, you know, let's use the, this from within the tradition because I, I always felt part of the tradition. I never felt uh, like I needed to divorce myself from that family in order to find uh, enough safety for myself. I actually felt there were enough, you know, um, resources within the, the Catholic tradition to uh, be at home in, in that family, which in which I grew up. Um, you know, plenty of uh, of gay priests uh, became friends, and, and, and uh, you know, were living their lives in integrity, mm. um, in honesty, and in an emotional sort of maturity that I uh, admired. Mm. Um, and and then other, you know, especially gay men who were also at home in the, in the church and found their own way with all of its contradictions and with all of its hypocrisies, with all of its problems, because, you know, it's humans, <laughs> uh, found their place, you know, in this big tent. And, and part of that is finding for myself, you know, a particular parish in each city I've ever lived in where it's, it's gay affirmative. It's even gay majority in some of these cases, mm-hmm. um, you know, where the sort of, I don't want to say the misfits of the church, but where uh, different kinds of, of people could show up and be really embraced and affirmed as they are without, for example, conforming to like suburban white um, middle-class culture in which I grew up in, in Omaha. Um, in, in which, you know, the Catholic parishes in which I grew up were all that, you know, middle-class suburban and white. Um, so finding my own faith community, for example, you know, St. Francis Xavier Parish here in Manhattan in New York, where I live now, has long been a place where queer people uh, are, I don't want to say the majority, but I mean, it's like, mm. it's, a, it's a very, very gay parish. But, you know, you mm. have the, like literally a, uh, uh, you know, EME, you know, minister of the Eucharist, who's a, a trans man, you know, you have um, just everyone in the, in the, you know, it's a mix of everyone who you are. And so those kinds of communities of belonging, um, I had to seek out, you know, we talk about chosen family. Well, the, that's like an extended family for me, mm-hmm. you know, or, or sacred heart parish in Omaha, Nebraska, where I, you know, went as a teenager and as a young adult, when I go back home to Omaha, that's where I go. Similarly, like what, whoever you are, you're, you're, you're welcome. Mm. And plenty mm. of, of, you know, gay, bi, queer folks are, are there. And I, as I was kind of growing into my self as a gay man and was living in Omaha in my mid, mid twenties, I would literally, you know, show up for the choir practice in the morning on Sunday after being out at the gay bars the night before and thinking like, huh. <laughs> How is it, how do I put all this together? But I was just like any person had to put these things together yeah. because this is part yeah. of who I was. So that's just one window, let's say, into like the support I have found in order mm. to allow myself to become myself more fully. Mm. 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 There, thank you for sharing that. And and there was a just one piece in particular that I may want to hear of few more thoughts about, which was that as part of that journey of finding home within a larger discourse that had 
uh, elements of it that were unwelcoming or, or even tried to be welcoming, but still came across as violence. Like, you know, uh, hate, hate the sin, love the sinner kind of language. And one of the things you started to develop around that time, it sounds like was a particular, uh, intellectual skill set or to like use your intellect as a way to show up in context that might not be as um, sort of affirming and big tent as some of the parishes you named and still kind of stay grounded in your commitment to your faith and, and the, these identities. And one of you could say a bit more about that, like this um, showing up in a context where there might be someone who says, yeah, I'm, I'm Catholic too. And I believe being gay is a sin and uh, I love you, but you're a sinner. Like, how do you, how did you like, tell me more about those kinds of interactions if you feel comfortable talking about them. Yeah. I mean, well, in a way it's, it's been a little bit implicit here, but you know, one of my um, refuges or, 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 you know, like we talk about the ivory tower. Mm. And for me, as a, as a little nerdy boy with big glasses and buck teeth, you know, dealing with all the stuff that was happening in my, my life, my family life, um, as a kid, my refuge was uh, books. Mm. It, was mm. the, it was to, like, ascend the, the tower, so to speak, which had a library in it, of course, <laughs> you know, in my brain, in my mind. And to go there and learn and read and imaginatively journey to far off lands and, and live other lives, that was a safe place that I created for myself. Mm. Well, having the kinds of interactions and that you, you know, kind of mimed a moment ago, like as a young man, uh, in, you know, with somebody who in his Catholicity or her Catholicity sort of confronts me and mine uh, with some condemnatory energy. Um, my, I mean, verbal skills and intellectual skills, debate skills, mm, mm, and mm. increasingly, you know, theological sophistication mm. became my ways of handling that, where I became more well, well-read in the tradition than the average person. I mean, eventually I became literally a card-carrying member of the Catholic Theological Society of America, you know, the guild of professional Catholic theologians in this country. Um, I became a theologian. So, which is of course, far more theologically engaged than any normal priest in the yes. church who's, you know, gets a pulpit, uh, whose theological education ended, you know, decades ago. And, you know, hmm. peace hmm. onto them. Like they're not, and yet for me, I found safety in that intellectual um, endeavor. Mm. I literally became a theologian in part to uh, find a sense of, of safety that I could defend mm. from within mm. the tradition. Mm. At the same time, of course, there's just like genuine uh, uh, curiosity and yes. love for the, the, the texts and the ideas. And as a person of faith who also, you know, finds himself an intellectual to like put together these pieces of myself and my own spiritual experience with my, my, my intellectual life. And that, that was another integration that was, you know, crucial, but 
there was there is this sort of defensive piece that I want to you know emphasize was uh, a, a factor. Yeah. And, and probably not a factor that at the time, especially not when I did the master's degree back in my early 20s, that I was ready to be aware of or admit or, or, or yeah, to, to, to myself or anyone else. Mm. That, that mm. came you know, in a way much later mm. um, that I became aware. I mean, it was it was probably Dr. D who, who got the, <laughs> you know, the, the clearest uh, uh, sense of like, oh, mm. That's mm. part of what I was up to mm. all these years. Mm. I get it now. Mm. Mm. I'm appreciating as you play with that nuance, like there's, it's not, it doesn't have to be an either or, like there is a way in which your natural dispositions and, and uh, makeup allowed you to follow that particular path because gosh, the imaginative journeys you went on and the sort of scholarly integrations you made sound really beautiful, period. And there's a way in which because those were your strengths, you could consciously or not sort of when the time came, step into a more of a, a defensive posture or protective posture or, or aggressive posture to navigate those moments that you yeah. had to constantly navigate. Yeah. So, I mean, when I work with you know clients today, I have real reverence for their defensive mechanisms mm. and their shields and their armor and their masks. These are not um, to be demeaned or thrown away lightly. They do real service. We, we genuinely need them at certain parts of times in our lives and certain moments in our lives to keep ourselves safe and to survive. And they have limitations at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they, we often keep them far beyond their uh, usefulness their, mm. um, and mm. overuse them in ways and times they're, they're not helpful, actually. But mm. because we're used to them being helpful, we keep using them. Right. Right. Just to go back to your initial metaphor, like having a full metal body armor covering you. Mm-hmm. Sure is useful if someone's behind you trying to hit you over the head and in front of you trying to stab you with a sword, like, yeah. you know, and when it's time to relax or go for a run or eat some food or, or go on a date or go on a date. <laughs> yeah. Showing up in that stance is going to be so cumbersome and it's going to disrupt all of these possibilities for intimacy and connection and play and pleasure that might otherwise be available. Yes. Yeah. And if we just think of that guy in the armor leading a team, you know, at the office and showing up in full, full, full metal jacket, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Like what kind of manager is that? What kind of executive is that? What kind Mm -hmm. of leadership Mm -hmm. is possible when all bundled up in that battle gear? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a pretty uh, fear-driven, battle-driven approach to management is going to show up. Possibly. Yeah. I'm looking at the time. I can't believe uh, how how far we've come. This has really flown by. We have about 12 minutes left, and um, I'd love to, to the extent we're able, use that time to make the move towards this stance you have, this belief you have that 
that queer flourishing is part of everyone flourishing. That sure. this kind of idea that if you in in the particular spot that you sit in, which is helping men like you uh, open up and let and set down their armor when it's right, and to to find their wings and whatever shape or nature they take, like all of that work sound like if I'm, if I'm one of your, your prospective clients or persons, I'm like, like, yeah, I can see that for me. But then there's this move towards, well, what is, how is, how does me doing that for myself uh, serve the greater good? How does a lot of us doing that for ourselves serve the greater good? And what is that? What's important about that? Yeah. I mean, as we've, talked and I've explained a little bit like what the reality can feel like for, for, for queer kids and maybe gay, gay men in particular. Um, I think you've already noticed that I certainly have a lot of this can pertain to straight kids too, to straight men and women, right? This is not uh, like queer people have no monopoly on defensiveness or uh, masquerading <laughs> Right. This is just this is actually just part of human development for mm. all of us. Mm. And yes, it has its own flavor for queer folks, but it's not. Um, it, it is literally part of uh, the human mm. journey. Yeah. And that's remember, why. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to that that brings a memory or maybe something I want to share in relationship to that. I was a I was a teenager or maybe early in college when I learned about the Kinsey scale for understanding sexuality, which I know yes. is is sort of has its limitations. But it, but the like essentially in essence, this idea that we we live in a culture that's very binary, and the scale is like oh actually no based based on this research people could be a one which is uh, heterosexual all the way to a five which is homosexual gay and then and then the three is bisexual but then you have these these twos and these fours and even that is simplistic but the the two i went oh i'm a two oh like just that just that discovery that there might be a category for me and that there might be other people that i wouldn't necessarily be able to see or tell just by looking especially if we're all armored up yeah uh, helped was a, was really important for me. And so I just want to like presence that as you, as you, yeah. as, as you point that out, that there's something for me that opened a door that otherwise would have been invisible yeah. perhaps to me. Yeah. Well, thank you for yeah sharing that, um, that impact of that knowledge on you back in that moment. And, you know, there's something about all social categories which are similarly um, uh, more concrete seeming, more uh, a, a binary uh, seeming than they actually are. Mm. Um, mm. And social categories help us understand who we are, who other people are in the world. I mean, and in, in societies, they're in a way vital. And there's a lot of value to taking a more spectrum approach to these identities, these, you know, whether we're talking about race or gender or sexual orientation um, or even, you know, ability, disability. Uh, so 
all of these categories can be in a way blown apart into not just five you know, yeah. degrees, but you know, billions of, 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 yeah. of degrees. It's, it's literally like the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, and that is part of the, you know, the truth of, of recognizing human beings as unique. Mm. Mm. Well, back to your question of what is the, what is it about queer flourishing that does benefit all? Um, we are, uh, we are a, a minority statistically, my, you know, a, a minority and there is a, we are part of a counterculture, mm-hmm. you know, being, mm-hmm. being gay and being homosexual are in a way two different things. I mean, homosexual was sort of like a diagnosis yeah. given, you know, in the sort of 18th, 19th century. Um, gay is a, is a, is a culture and mm. it has been developed it's created it's constantly you know vibrant just like black culture or just like you know a thousand uh, other kinds of of culture uh, uh, i mean i live in a puerto rican neighborhood in the east village of, of manhattan like mm. these are evolving dynamic uh, uh communities of, mm. of unique human beings who are bringing themselves and their uniqueness in conversation with the tradition that they come with so there's something about queer people who give to the majority permission to look past the categories that have defined them and to know that something else might be the case Mm, mm, and to mm. begin to wonder what might be in quotation marks queer about them, even if they're absolutely only every time attracted to people of the opposite gender Mm, in the mm -hmm. the binary Mm. But like, what's weird and wonderful about them? What yeah. what might be bottled up in a too rigid categorical schema that, if released, might be whimsical, might be against the grain? I mean, that's what the word queer etymologically means: is against the grain. Mm. It means like transverse, you know, sort mm. of cutting across mm. categories, cutting across the the mainstream. Well, everyone has something weird and wonderful about them. And, um, you know, for all kinds of reasons that are not necessarily mean or evil, society uh, imposes a kind of conformity energy onto all of us. Hmm. Well, we're, we, we, we LGBTQ folks are kind of like a, a natural uh, reminder, you know, in the sort of biodiversity of the world that, Hey, there's a lot more in those like rigid categories. <laughs> and so we are by who being who are we are to the extent that we are who we are, to the extent that we do actually flourish. To, to the extent that we are and my definition of flourishing, by the way, is sort of the aliveness made possible by love. Mm. Mm. To the extent that mm. we are alive. In response to the love that's available in us and from us and and from others to us. We can witness we can like prophetically call others to flourish others Mm. to be alive Mm. to not be uh frozen to not be you know in concrete but to like come alive like the tin man you know oh like in in in, you know this is part of i think why uh uh uh, the wizard of oz is like a a queer classic because like let's live in in living color you know, let's let's come out. Let's from the black and white binary to the spectrum of all the colors. Isn't that much more fun? 
isn't that much more alive? Mm-hmm. That's the, mm-hmm. uh, in a way, essence of how queer flourishing benefits all. Mm. Mm. I'm, I've just been smiling for the past three minutes as you, as you articulated that so beautifully. And your definition of um, flourishing was the aliveness that comes through love. Is that right? Yeah, the aliveness made possible through love. Yeah, made possible. And that sort of technicolor, full spectrum, there's so much more possibility in that. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. There's a, there's a question I'm sitting with or a thought I'm sitting with. I'm just going to see if I can let it come through. You know, there's there, and we have in part had this conversation in part today, but there's like a, a deeper conversation that we don't have, that I don't have time to really ask you about, which is sort of the very justifiable uh, reasons to keep the armor on and the ways in which there is, uh, you said, you know, it's not always the conformity energy isn't always mean or evil, but there is a very clear, violent strain of the conformity energy that, uh, that is potentially showing up in ways that, that I, I believe puts our whole species at risk. Um, it's very maladaptive. But but if we just uh, so I want to name that and then like zoom a bit more into the that's maybe one far end of this spectrum of possibility. But but as we get more into the middle, let's call it, there are lots of folks who um, maybe in response to that violent extreme, but who aren't necessarily don't necessarily identify with a capital Q as queer or, or gay. Like that's who you're talking about now. Like there's so many humans who, if they had access to that less rigid, more fluid self, life would be more fun and, and more pleasurable and sensual. And, um, I wonder, like, if you could sort of speak to the, to that population of people who now is, is maybe wider than, the folks who might enroll in your programs, at least the programs that you're offering now, but who maybe one day might read your book or, you know, might kind of want to like go to, to, um, uh, to a March on pride day and just kind of like peek a bit and sort of like, they're just curious. There's some part of them that's curious, but a little bit nervous or afraid. Like what, what would you say to someone like that? How would you invite them in? What hand do you hold out to help more folks go like, yeah, I want that. I want what I want. What Dominic's describing, and I don't quite know what it is yet. Yeah, I mean, meeting people where they are um, to make that kind of, let's say, developmental invitation mm. is uh, crucial to this work. And and you know whether that person that you're talking, you're asking me to speak to, is you know the the 15 year old who's in the categories or the 25 year old or the 45 year old or the 75 year old, Mm. um, the kind of drab, you know, uh, 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 limited set of possibilities that they might be, uh, stuck in, imprisoned in even, and, and sense that, that, stuckness that those possibilities that limited set of possibilities is inevitable that that's all there really is 
well, I, I, I have this, I'm this, you know, part of me that's like, well, meeting that 15 year old where they are in that and the 25 year old and the 45 and the set, those are different, mm. Um, mm. Mm. different conversations, different, mm. like come hithers. Yes. Right? yes. To, yes. To offer. Yeah. Um, and unlocking the curious, the natural curiosity that we all humans have um, it, it, it is, it, yeah, that's the, that's the work. And it can mm. be, mm. you know, simply like, going to a restaurant of a, of a kind of cuisine that you've never tried mm. and mm. noticing mm. how it feels in your mouth and nose. Mm. Uh, it could be uh, risking going to uh, a subtitled movie in a language that you don't speak. Right. Or yeah, it could be going to a, a, a drag brunch, you know, and, <laughs> kind of wowing at the the ferocious bitchiness of a drag queen you know yes any of in a way these are intercultural mm-hmm. experiments mm-hmm. just tiptoe out of the narrow confines of the cultures and i say that we're you know in a broad sense like the the gender categories the ethnicities as well as the sort of national cultures that we we usually use the word for and just sniff what might be there for me. Yeah. What might that taste yeah. like over there? Yeah. That's the, in a way, that's the developmental invitation. Mm. 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 It's beautiful. Thank you, Dominic. You're welcome. Here we are. We find ourselves at our time boundary. Uh, this was a really rich and fun. I appreciated having both uh, Dr. Longo and Do- Dr. D here with us today. I felt both of them pretty fully. And also F. Dominic Nick as well. Thank you for presencing him. Sure. Uh, for anyone who's listening that wants to find out more about your work, where should they go? Flourishinggaze.com. Mm. Mm. And... Um, you mentioned that you're also like, does that, is that inclusive? You're actually also offering a program specifically for like coaches and other human development practitioners. Will they be able to find that work there as well? Um, if my website is well designed, then the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, I, I can't say that I'm a master of, of marketing, uh, but getting in touch through that, uh, they certainly could. Great. Yes. Lovely. Yeah. And um, maybe for everyone who's listening, I want to just uh, underline Dominic's invitation to go, go take an intercultural risk, go step or stand somewhere that from afar looks a little bit strange or scary, or maybe you didn't even really think of it or notice it until having listened to this conversation and see what happens. That feels like, it feels, it feels like we need a lot more of that kind of gentle curiosity in our, in our world right now. Amen. Hmm. All right. Thank you, Dominic. And thanks everyone for listening. In. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, 
while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others. Consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever. <laughs>